Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. You got Logan Jones and Evan Knowles here recording out of Awesome Inc. Um, we just finished recording with uh, David Mann and Ron Watson of Dundee Ventures. Uh, but before we get to that, Evan and I had a cool experience celebrating our 100th episode among other things that we wanted to celebrate during the quarantine but didn't get to. Got to take ourselves to Jeff Ruby's. Man, what a steak. <laughs> they got some good steak. I've had some great steaks and they've got They've got a good one, especially for this area, right? So, yeah. great food, uh, great company. Uh, yeah. Conversation got, was awesome. Yeah. We got to make fun of you a good bit for not having a mustache like <laughs> me and my friend Joseph. I didn't get the memo. He also didn't get the memo to wear. Nice. I did get that memo, but I'm not the kind. Of, I don't. I'm not. I'm not big on uh, dressing up too nice unless I absolutely have to. Yeah. So we we <laughs> <laughs> we were trying to look nice and you know make ourselves look presentable at Jeff Ruby's. Evan went went a different route. Um, but we also got to introduce, he was looking good. He was looking good. It's all good. Um, but we also got to introduce Evan to Blanton's, which is a big moment for me being the bourbon connoisseur that I am. And, uh, I think, what'd you think of, what'd you think of the Blanton's? Some good stuff. I have had some, I mean, we've probably got some clips of me trying to drink bourbon on the show and just like <laughs> grimacing. Uh, haven't been a bourbon guy, uh, not a huge bourbon guy at all. Um, I'm getting used to it. I think Logan's trying to you know, turn the corner with me on, on bourbon, but that one was uh, pretty special. I, we, could, I could definitely drink that. We ought to start doing old fashions on air because that's yeah. how I got into bourbon. I didn't like bourbon before either, and then you ease into it. Yeah. Um, but speaking of bourbon, we got to have some bourbon um, with Ron and Ron and David. Some bourbon soon, and scotch. Yeah, bourbon and scotch. As soon as they saw our, saw our bottle sitting out on the table, they immediately went and found some bottles in their house. Uh, I know I know David was drinking E.H. Taylor, which is a great a great selection from our friends at Buffalo Trace. Uh, I forget the name of what, what Ron was drinking. Yeah, some, I'm not familiar with scotch. Sorry, Ron. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, this was an awesome episode. We had some some awesome learnings. And this was also cool because, again, our friend Jake Butler at Endeavor uh, connected us. But he connected us, and then Evan realized that he was already connected to David uh, through Fuji. So, yeah, talk about that a little bit for a second. Yeah, so uh, David was, and Dundee Ventures was an investor in, in Fuji. Um, and so I actually had, had gone to lunch with, with uh, some of the board uh, one day uh, when we were, I forgot how big the team was. Um, but yeah, I had, I had eaten lunch with David and, and his partner, uh, Greg Buffet, and uh, we, we got to know each other and then hadn't talked really much since. And then Jake connected us. So I thought that was, that was pretty cool. Pretty cool. Um, yeah, this was, this is an awesome, awesome episode. Um, you know, I think one of the big takeaways is what they look for in founders. You know, they said this several times as they, they really analyze the people, uh, the founding team, mm-hmm. and make sure that the founders of early stage companies that they invest in, you know, their seed rounds are good learners. They're adaptable, um, and they're you know hungry to learn. Uh, they're they're really trying to work hard um, as a whole entire team to adapt and learn quickly. Um, and that's hard. That's hard for a lot of people. You know, being really flexible um, in times that are you know kind of murky water. Uh, which every startup's always in in murky water, um, especially in the beginning, is is hard for people. You know, they like they like the the stable job or they like the the comfort of predictability. And and in order to be a successful startup founder, you have to be comfortable with the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're they're good at you know seeing that. Yep. Um, so this is an awesome episode. Uh, I look forward to doing this. Yeah, I mean, we get to discuss a little bit about their firm. Um, what they look for in founders, you know, their learnings and then their opinion on this region, which they call the mighty middle. Yep. Uh, so, you know, we've got, we've definitely got some overlap with them. Um, but yeah, like we said, we really love this episode. I think you guys will too. We're going to go and get into it. Yep. David and Ron, thank you so much for joining. We're excited for the conversation. Here. All right. Let's absolutely. We've been excited about this one. So I knew David, I knew you from, from Fuji. So I don't know. I don't know if you remember or not. We had gotten Carson's. Uh, I definitely remember the fries and I think it's pork belly. That was the first time I've had that. That was one of the more memorable parts of that, of that lunch. I've got to admit I was blown away by it, but we had met, uh, you guys came in for a board meeting with Fuji uh, and we'll get into some of your portfolio companies briefly later in the discussion. But Fuji is one of them. I was at Fuji 
uh, for about four years. So we had the privilege of meeting a while ago. And then Jake uh, from Endeavor introduced us again, a small, small world there. Um, and here we are. So we had to record with you guys. You guys are doing some amazing work here in middle America uh, with Dundee Ventures. So we want to jump on and discuss your all's work. Ron, thank you for joining as well. Uh, Ron is newer to the team, so we're going to get into his background uh, and all of the work you guys are doing. So let's, you know, like I said, jump quickly into backgrounds. Uh, either of you can start. Ron, why don't you start, um, and then we'll go on. We'll go on and just go through these uh, these questions here. Yeah, sure. So I am a uh, relative uh, newborn, as you uh, sort of suggested with uh, Dundee. I guess this is what my third week, David. Is that right? Uh, with the fund uh, for the previous five years before joining Dundee, I was with Lewis and Clark Ventures uh, here in St. Louis. I'm sitting uh, in my sunroom here in St. Louis. Um, and uh, yeah, just got to Dundee. I started my career um, out of uh, Indiana University uh, in Chicago uh, as a consultant with uh, A.T. Kearney and uh, collected a bunch of degrees on the way, got a master's at SICE and a PhD um, here in St. Louis at WashU, and that's what brought me to St. Louis and uh, got me into uh, venture capital. Um, just new to the seed stage as well. Like I said, I've been investing uh, at the Series A stage, sat on about uh, six or seven boards at Lewis and & Clark, and uh, really excited to get my uh, first uh, couple of uh, investments with Dundee under my belt. Yeah, Ron. Uh, real quick, I want to do a small world connection here. Did you know? Aust did you know Austin Woods at at uh, Lewis and Clark Ventures? Of course, and yeah, uh, you know everybody should be reading Austin's Between the Coast yep, uh, newsletter, yep, yep. which is awesome. He's, he uh, he's a listener of ours. He's reached out before, but more than that, he's my best friend's brother. You're so kidding. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Grew up with his younger brother. Had his dad as a middle school teacher, and I was talking. I was actually hanging out with his brother this weekend. And I was I was saying that we were having you on. And I was like, man, that's a that's a cool small world connection. So we're all we're all super connected here. It seems, um, but yeah. So great background. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so yeah, let's go ahead and dive into to David's background here. For it's, I mean, look, that there's a there's a reason why everything uh, why everybody gets along so well in the Midwest, right? I mean, right. we all somehow know each other, and when you <laughs> then you narrow it down into VC, where it's a small world. So it's great. Um, so I've been in the VC world for about 10 years now. Um, our efforts started in Chicago with a group called Lake West Venture Partners that, um, that I helped create out of a family office for a local real estate developer. Um, so a, uh, a very successful real estate developer who had quite literally built Chicago was interested at that time in helping build sort of the next uh, wave of Chicago uh, you know, ecosystems. And um, this is right around when the, the, the Hub 1871 launched and uh, there was certainly plenty of news, if not notoriety around uh, at, at Chicago's then largest technology success being Groupon. Um, we started to uh, try and figure out how people learned about deals like that at their earliest stages. Uh, who were the people that got to invest $50,000 or some other small amount in some of these early stage tech companies and then obviously sort of went to the outcomes that they did. Um, and so uh, I was tapped as the one to go out and figure that out. So uh, started essentially a long and winding networking journey through the world of venture capital initially in Chicago and then broadened out beyond the city here uh, into other Midwestern locales. Um, we made, uh, we invested in about 24, 25 companies as Lake West Venture Partners. We were getting ready to raise another fund in 2015 when uh, we decided to join forces with the original founders of Dundee Venture Capital in Omaha. So sort of parallel efforts up until that point, we had overlapped on one company, uh, an investment in Madison, Wisconsin, that, where we were both involved. And um, uh, we were both sort of looking at doing something very similar and realized really, really quickly that we could essentially do a lot more damage together than apart. And so uh, in late 2015, uh, Mark Haysbrook, the original founder of Dundee Venture Capital, and I sat down for breakfast and 45 minutes later, we sort of had this all mapped out. Um, went back and convinced our team, started raising this next fund in early 2016, and um, that was where at least the current iteration of Dundee Venture Capital came to be with that $30 million fund that we launched in 2016. Um, and so fast forward to today, we're getting ready to, we're, we're in the midst of raising our next fund. We've already had a first close on it. We've started to invest out of it. Um, uh, 
and we very sort of fortunately were able to connect with Ron to uh, convince him that this was the way to go for Midwest-based uh, and focused VC going forward. And here we are. Yeah. So you guys focusing on seed stage. Talk a bit about you know, your all's investment strategy and you know either the the niches you look into or um, the trends that you are watching. Talk about just kind of your all's strategy and what you guys are looking at. Sure. So I'll start off, Ron, and then I'll, you know, you, you certainly fill in because the second part of this, I think, is, is really one of the things that, that Ron's uh, going to be driving here. Um, we, we started off essentially as a sort of a, a regionally focused generalist investor. We, we wanted to look at every deal we possibly could in the region, um, and the definition for Midwest has expanded over the years, right? Um, you know, what started off as Chicago, Indianapolis, Cincinnati, Lexington, um, you know, has now uh, expanded to include Denver, Boulder, and Pittsburgh, um, and Minneapolis, and Austin, and all those places. But um, we started off wanting to uh, make sure that we saw every deal that we possibly could that was technology-related uh, across a very, very wide range of, of the country. Um, and we were investing really in the teams that we found that we, that we wanted to get behind, uh, who were, as we would see it, sort of the, you know, the eight to ten best founding teams that we could find across that broad region and then helping them grow their business doing whatever it was that they did. Um, we have certainly learned about the areas where we don't invest. So we don't invest in sort of uh, biopharma and sort of pure healthcare plays and, and manufacturing plays. And we've started now along a path of more um, sort of thematic or thesis-based investing. Um, and that's something that, that Ron certainly has a lot of experience with coming from his background. Um, and so we're sort of excited to move in that direction now. Got it. Yeah. I'll just add to that really quickly. So I think we're, yeah, we're on a journey here. And I think we're really starting this uh, thesis-based journey that we're really excited about. Um, it, it makes us sound like we're early, but in fact, I think we're quite mature in some ways uh, for a venture fund. Some of the venture funds that I see um, focus so much on just seeing the deals. And I think you need to focus on both seeing and understanding the deals, right? So you need to build out real market knowledge, understanding, and insight in the places where you think you can go and you think you can find winners. Because otherwise, they'll come through the door and you won't know what you've got in front of you. So I think we've been historically really good at Dundee probably maybe as good as anyone else between the coasts at going out and seeing all the deals. And that is hard and it takes a lot of hustle to do it. And now we need to build that extra layer and really understand deeply what's coming through the door. So we make sure that we make the picks uh, as best as we can. I think a natural next question is how are you guys finding some of these deals? Cause that's a, that's a problem we're trying to solve specifically here in Lexington and Louisville very immediately, but eventually further into this mighty middle, as you guys call it, how are you guys going about actually finding some of these? Sure. Yeah, yeah I'll, 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 I'll give the first part again. So, you know, traditionally, and, and this will continue to be uh, a big part of what we do, um, you know, traditionally, it's a very vast and deep network. Um, and that's a network of founders, service providers, other venture capitalists, um, accelerators, uh, you, you name it, it's been a source for us. Um, and so the goal has always been to sort of get out in front in, in a lot of different cities, what the activity level is there and how we can, be, how we can come to be known as the, the choice option for seed stage venture capital funding. Um, and so that has been for us really up until this past March, um, a very travel intensive and sort of um, deep dive into particular city intensive effort that we all that we all sort of share and equally. Part of the idea behind you know moving towards more uh, thematic or thesis based investing is that we can start to delve into uh, deeply into a particular thesis or theme and start to, uh, I think, sort of much more efficiently get to know the space and all the players in it, regardless of geography. And, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of, that's, that's what we are, the journey that we're beginning today. Yeah, and if you think about it, it's just a different snowballing question, right? So when you're out in a geography, you ask every interesting founder that you meet, hey, who are the other interesting founders in the market? 
Mm -hmm. right? When you're running a theme or a thesis, uh, the question is slightly different. It's who are your competitors, right? Who are the companies that you really admire in your space? Um, and then, you know, you sort of snowball that way and go get to know everyone in a space and really build up that knowledge base there. Yeah. What, what are some spaces you guys are seeing and, and becoming really interested in or diving more into recently? Are there, are there any in particular you can think of? Yeah. So I think it worked in the very early stages um, of having these conversations uh, inside of the fund. But at a high level, I think we wanna pick where the strengths of the middle of the country are, right? So where are the spaces that are really strong between the coasts? You have insurance, you have healthcare, you have supply chain, you have logistics, you have manufacturing. They're slightly different industries than maybe what you would see in New York or in California but they are very big, very exciting industries nevertheless. So I think that's um, where we're gonna be focusing on where you see real strengths uh, of our particular markets. Yeah, and, and when you do find uh, a company and you say, this is interesting, or you have people tell you, this is an interesting company you need to check out, walk through kind of your all's process and the criteria you guys put in place to kind of take that idea or that company that has been brought to your interest and bringing along your all's process and, and say, okay, we need to spend more time on, on this company because it meets these, these certain criterias or, um, you know, the processes we want to put in place, it, it meets kind of, um, the stage they're in and, um, you know, their location, their theme, just talk about, you know, some of that criteria. Sure. So, you know, I, I, I think about what we do right now as sort of um, being a uh, people market product uh, sort of way in which that I, that I try to assess them. So I think first and foremost, we are looking, especially at the seed stage, I mean, again, we're talking about relatively early businesses that are going to go through a lot to reach their ultimate outcome and reach a successful outcome. Um, so first and foremost, we're looking for people that we think are sort of best suited for that journey. So uh, coachability and um, sort of, uh, you know, interest in listening to the, the market as it responds to their product or service um, uh, or, or, you know, software to adjust to what they're learning about their customers or maybe even adjusting the customer itself. Um, that kind of flexibility um, is, is really important. How do you measure that? How do you, how do you look at that and say, okay, this person is coachable, this person is listening. How do you, how do you look at that and say, okay, this is somebody that meets that? Yeah. So I, I think about it in two ways. One is we, um, we do, we, we put a lot of weight on, um, on, uh, customer conversations, early customer conversations. So generally what we're, we're talking to, to companies that have at least sort of like that earliest, um, amount or, or set of customers and activity so that it's not just sort of back of the napkin idea trying to figure out, Hey, could this be a business? And talking to those customers, customers about their interaction with the company is really important for us. Uh, do they listen? Do they respond? Do they react? Um, you know, are they uh, generally responsive to uh, feature or need changes that we think are important for our industry? And it's actually that kind of customer relationship, I think, that's, that's sort of most important. Um, that's how early stage, one of the, the main way that early stage, stage businesses start to understand what are the buttons that they have to push and levers that they can pull to really start to grow their business. And that's where we start to get really excited. Yeah. Um, you know, those are the companies that we think we are best suited to help scale. So we're not coming in on day one to help them write code. And we're not coming in on day one with a big check and our fingers crossed saying, you know, best of luck to you guys, hope it all works out, and, you know, makes us a bunch of money. We're looking to sort of work with them in their learnings from their earliest customers to take that <clears throat> initial subset, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, one, two, 10, 50 customers and turn it into an exponential, you know, growth pattern uh, based on those learnings. So the, uh, you know, the, the founders that are uh, sort of most attuned with that kind of journey are sort of who we're looking for. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like real quick, it's almost like, you know, a founder goes through that same exercise, you know, a founder of a company has to do the same with his early team, right? So he has to make sure that the people he hire can, can grow with the company, the people he's, or he, he or she is hiring and can listen to the customers, listen to the rest of the team. And, you know, it sounds, it makes sense since you guys are early stage investing, you know, that makes sense completely that a founder goes through those same exercises early. Ron, were you going to say something there? 
Yeah, no, I was just going to say some of it is just paying really close attention, right? So during a diligence process, if you're doing things well, there are going to be points of disagreement and you just listen really carefully with what happens in those points of disagreement, right? So a lot of founders, their response is going to be really defensive and they're just going to try to convince you wholesale that they are correct, right? But the best founders are often the ones that say, you know, when you disagree, oh, that's really interesting. Why? Why do you think this way? You know, what insight is there for me to learn that you have a different perspective here? Um, and those learning machines are the people that you want to find and the people that you want to back. Yeah. And, and to take that, and that's exactly the point, to take that to the, the <clears throat> sort of next logical step, those founders are the ones that when their initial subset of customers suggest that the, you know, that the piece of software isn't working for them or isn't solving a need or isn't doing what it's supposed to do, those founders are the ones that adjust to that scenario and carry the business forward. Um, if, their, if their response to those scenarios were, I'm sorry, all of my customers, you're wrong and I'm right, the next day they have no customers and that's not presumably the one that we want to back. So, um, you know, th that, that's the dynamic that's at play that, that we are looking to understand uh, from a sort of character point of view very, very early. So it's customer calls, it's, it's reference checks, uh, you know, with, with other people, uh, you know, in those founders' professional lives that can sort of shed light on, uh, you know, on, on their approach to, uh, uh, you know, their, their thought process, their approach to problem solving, et cetera. It's so, also just like going to dinner and shooting the shit and, you know, getting in an argument and absolutely. hearing uh, how they deal with, uh, you know, someone challenging them, for sure. Um, yeah, so... So to take this uh, the the next step on down this this train of thought, talk about some of the times this has worked out where you've you've gone through this due diligence and you've put some money in these companies, and now talk about some of these companies that are part of your guys' portfolio. Uh, sure, I, you know there there the, there's sort of two that I grabbed out here to bring up here. Um, the first one, two very very different companies. Uh, the first one is a uh, direct to consumer product company based in St. Louis. Uh, that both um, Ron and I have invested in in their their earliest past. So it's a sort of an easy one to talk about. It's called Somersault. They make um, uh, they 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 manufacture women's uh, millennial women's leisure wear, swimwear, things like that. Um, we got involved with the company a number of years ago at the seed stage when they had about five hundred thousand in revenue. There were a variety of issues with the company that, and uh, sort of the way it was set up, the way it was operating, that didn't really make sense to us. And we had sort of a really um, dynamic interaction with the founders about how to essentially convert their early business into a venture scalable operation. And we did all that before even investing any dollars. Uh, interestingly, it was a really easy way for us as a team on the, on the Dundee side to figure out that those founders were exactly the type of founders that would have that kind of openness, transparency, and flexibility that would, we thought, serve them well as their company grew um, in, in what can be on the venture side, certainly a, a very fast moving and, and ultimately very cutthroat uh, part of the venture world in terms of direct to consumer uh, of products. And so, uh, you know, needless to say, when, when we were able to have those early conversations with them, get the company essentially set up to succeed, we were really eager to make an investment at that point. And you know, the, the success pattern is essentially half a million in revenue in year one, five million in revenue in year two, 22 or 23 million in revenue in year three, um, you know, bringing on a, a series A round led by Founders Fund in the Valley, um, and then moving on from there. And I, I want, you know, I, I, that's sort of exactly the kind of pattern that we want to see happen with a company like that. Um, Ron got to see it from the Series A perspective in a, in a different way, and I think that this is sort of a good example to sort of see how that, uh, how, what that view looks like a little bit further into the process. It was a way easier call for me. Good <laughs> <laughs> inflection point. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, that was a, a very easy call. I also knew 
uh, Lori and Reshma, the founders, um, I guess from the day that they started the company. And I think they're, you know, a, an example of a, a really good founding team where they're the perfect yin and yang to one another. Lori's really strong on the operations side, on the finance side, and Rush was really strong on the finance or on the brand and the marketing side. And they know their strengths, they know their weaknesses, and they work so um, kind of hand in glove um, together. It's been uh, it's been great to watch them have success. So, with the direct to consumer, you guys have been said clo- clothing brand uh, to scale that quickly. I'm imagining it's not as simple as just throw up a Shopify store, put some amazing ads behind it and get some influencers. What does VC money come in and really ultimately help them do? Paint that picture really quickly. So the earliest dollars help them basically set up their strategy to go do that, right? So uh, one of the benefits that they had in working with us at Dundee is that Mark Hayesbrook, our founder, was uh, one of the original founders of Hayneedle. Uh, the the uh, direct-to-consumer home products company that ultimately got to uh, $400 million in revenue, got acquired by Jet.com, the Amazon competitor, and is now part of Walmart. So Mark started that business. Um, that's everything, everything from, you know, like early, um, you know, SEO strategy to uh, dealing with manufacturing to dealing with all the sort of curveballs that come at founders of a business like that very early on. Um, you know, I, I, I remember early on that the, the first time they had to deal with um, knockoff products as a as a as, as a uh, something as a as a, an obstacle, and uh, you know, early founders who've never dealt with that before can be that can be a really daunting problem to deal with. Like, oh my, what are we going to do? Somebody is making something that looks just like what we make and selling it for ten bucks less, and they've got a pretty good website, and what, we're dead. Well, you know, certainly somebody like Mark knows exactly how to deal with that and exactly how to coach the founders to make it through that issue. Um, so it's things like that that are sort of really helpful in that particular situation to, you know, help them essentially stay focused on um, the, the, the metrics that they, and, and processes that they need to stay focused on to grow their business. Uh, and it works pretty well. So that's, that, that's good. Very cool. Okay. Um, another one of your portfolio companies that I personally noticed, um, was, uh, Costello. Did I say that right? Right. Um, so I was using sales loft, uh, when they acquired Costello and I remember that acquisition, uh, is that, is that one you guys can talk about or have any insight on? Yeah, I, I, I can talk about that. So I was, a uh, I was like sort of the, the second chair board member on Costello, uh, alongside our partner, Greg, um, the, the, the history of Costello, I think, is sort of what's most interesting in that um, the, the founder, Frank Dale, is somebody that we knew well, well before he started Costello. And he was somebody that over the course of our getting to know him and the different things that he was doing around the Indianapolis tech scene, we knew that he was somebody that we wanted to back ultimately. And so um, it was one it was it probably one of, if not the earliest investment we made into a company. Um, that was one where essentially Frank had sort of written up a business plan for Costello. Um, and it had, a, it had a, a different name before that, but had written up a business plan and we decided to back him in its earliest creation. Um, so slightly different than the way that we typically go about doing this, but frankly, probably even more important in terms of what it is we do besides sending a check and you know crossing our fingers, right? So um, we had to work with Frank from the very outset on creating a business out of a Casello business plan. Uh, anything from the basics, where, where do you office, right? Where, do you, where is the right environment in a particular uh, uh, ecosystem to, uh, to start a business? How do you hire your first uh, important uh, team members and what should those skill sets be? Um, one thing, basically, based on Frank's background, we didn't have to um, teach him how to sell. That was the, the, the sales was in Frank's DNA, and that was essentially what he was going after. Um, so uh, his, you know, sort of acute knowledge of, you know, process and landscape for what he wanted to sell was what we were ultimately backing. Um, and of course, we also had to work with a company like like Costello on the various obstacles that uh, that show up over the earliest the very earliest stages of company building. Um, 
you know, what happens when you don't hit a number? What happens when things are happening or, or, or when you're not able to achieve a goal that you wanted to achieve because of things out of your control? Uh, how do you make those adjustments? How do you put together uh, uh, your set of investors when uh, you don't have a founder's fund sort of coming and calling uh, based on immediate, immediate success? And so the interesting thing, you know, ultimately about Costello is we sort of work through all those issues. We work hand in hand with founding teams to get to whatever the right outcome is. And this, in this case, the outcome for Costello was to be part of a larger organization. Um, and, you know, we helped develop that relationship and, and find that right landing. Yeah, makes sense. Cool. Uh, any more portfolio companies you guys want to highlight before we move on to this next, next section here? I think those are two good ones, unless, I, and, you know, unless um, I, I know it wouldn't be Dundee, but um, Ron, from your past, others that are relevant, you, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly answer the question, but they won't be Dundee portfolio companies um, to answer the question. Uh, if I remember correctly, though, um, the questions were about like failures and successes and kind of the principles underlying them. And uh, I mean, I guess I could go there really quickly. Um, I, my experience um, with failures has always been uh, taking metrics that you believe are proxies for maturity and giving too much weight for them. And uh, ultimately, I think as an investor, you need to focus very closely on what the customers out there, even if they're potential customers, say to you. And revenue in particular can be a uh, deceiver um, and can lead you to believe that a company is much more mature than it actually is. Um, I know many Midwest investors, for example, put a lot of um, credence into $1 million in run rate, right? But my experience is $1 million in run rate can be so many different things for so many different com uh, companies. Maybe it's the same product sold a hundred times, which would be great. Maybe it's two very different products sold twice, right? And those are very, very different signals, but it's interesting that some funds have that as a threshold that they won't invest before that moment. Um, and in my experience, uh, just giving a lot of credence to that or other metrics um, has misled and led to investment failures when you really should focus on the qualitative data of how excited is the customer, how big of a pain point is it, and does the product solve the pain point? And that's where you find your biggest winners. So if I'm an entrepreneur in middle America, uh, what are the things working to my advantage uh, that you guys have seen with other founders? Talk about you know why you guys are, are investing in the middle and what you guys see as advantages that we have. Yeah. So I think there's a standard list here that you hear about um, and everybody knows things like it's a lot cheaper to build a business here. Um, but I'll speak to something that people don't often talk about, which I think is really important. And that is the ability to keep a really cohesive team together through ups and downs. And I've seen this a number of times with my own portfolio companies. Um, and I've seen the reverse of it on the coast uh, with friends that I have uh, who are investors out there. So the markets um, in, in New York and Silicon Valley in particular are so competitive <clears throat> that uh, folks in the development organization um, and other parts of the organization, product organization as well, sales and marketing, but you see it primarily with the Eng teams. Um, they have so many outside options. The moment that a company goes even a tiny bit south, lots of people just jump ship to the next thing because a big part of their compensation is equity and they want the upside. In the middle of the country, these ecosystems are still building. And one, there's probably not as many opportunities yet that people can immediately jump to. But two, there's just a loyalty here where you join a company and you believe that you have kind of a, a life cycle to you know, go through with that company. And I've just seen this play out multiple times with my portfolio companies where things 
hit the rocks for a little bit. There's some things you need to figure out. Maybe the company has to go through the pivot and 90 plus percent of the team stays intact. And that is just so exceedingly rare um, in these other startup markets. And you've seen this happen um, and companies turn into big uh, successes. A company I sat on the board of Beam, for example, um, went through some really rocky times. Uh, Fro, the CEO there, has talked openly about it um, in, in multiple fora. And uh, everyone just stuck with it. And now the company has gone on to uh, incredible success um, because they were able to keep that team together. Hmm, that's one I haven't heard, but I really like that one. Yeah, that makes that's a cool. ton of sense. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, David, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, th that's a, a really critical point. And, and from, from my perspective, I've always thought about that more from um, I, like the loyalty point of view. And I, I haven't really thought about it as metrically as that. But from a loyalty point of view, people that I've found in the Midwest and the companies that we are looking to build are genuinely interested in working with their teams to build a company. And often they have an additional motivation or understanding of the fact that at the same time that they're building a particular company and a particular outcome there, they're building a new or newer ecosystem. Um, to go to work for whatever company in a place where the ecosystem is already developed is just that, going to work for that company. And it might be <clears throat> lucrative and it might be super successful and important to mankind and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, uh, an, another successful technology business coming out of the Valley or out of New York or wherever, you know, isn't really changing the nature of what that ecosystem is. Every time that happens in one of the cities that we invest in, it has a tremendous ripple effect. Hmm. Um, so, you, you know, I, I can, you can pick any of the, the big exits in really any of these cities, but what does that spawn off? It spawns off all sorts of individuals who come out of that opportunity and either start investing in other companies, um, start additional companies themselves and hire a bunch of people, um, or add their own mentorship and uh, leadership to a growing community, a changing community. And that's really important for how our ecosystems grow. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's a, there's an opportunity set here in that, in all of these cities that doesn't exist um, in the more uh, mature ecosystems. Yeah, that, that's one that, you know, I wanted to, to touch on a bit because we feel that very directly with Middle Tech. Big time. And even my, myself with, with the company I'm building now is what's beautiful about, you know, Kentucky and this whole region is you reach out to somebody and they're just so warm with you. They're willing to help. And part of it is what you said. They want to help grow the ecosystem. And part of it is, you know, they just want to help uh, young entrepreneurs. You know, that's part of growing the ecosystem. But more so, it's just this hospitality and this willingness to give the time to help somebody. Um, you know, I always tell people um, as just a, a personal piece of advice to somebody, if you're interested in something, start a podcast and reach out to people. And more often than not, they're going to say, yeah, let's jump on. Uh, you know, when we started Middle Tech, we didn't necessarily do it for the networking side of things. But what really amazed us when we did it was we have never been turned down by a single person we've ever asked to come on a podcast. We've had a hundred episodes now. And no matter who we ask, whether they're running a company worth a billion dollars or a company worth, you know, nothing because they just started, you know, they're so willing to just jump and, and talk. Um, and then myself and, and growing in my company now, I've reached out to a lot of our past guests who I know are very busy people. And even in the midst of COVID, you know, I know they're just running around with, with their head caught on fire and they still take the time to shoot me an email and give me advice. And it's just that feeling I think is just inherent with this with this part of the United States. So that that's, I'm glad you touched on that because yeah, it's very apparent. To build off what you were saying, David, about companies spinning into other companies in the ecosystem, I mean, I know Evan can attest to this, Fuji uh, has spun off multiple different companies in this in this ecosystem. One of them I'm, I'm actually working for, one of the engineers that was working at Fuji came and is now working at the startup that I'm working at. And I'm sure that, you know, if this startup that I'm at continues to grow and build a team, the same thing's going to happen. It's like, you know, it just burst off into little little webs of networks and people that now have the skills and know what it takes to build a company like that. And 
Yeah, that's one of the things we love to see here in Lexington and Louisville. And that's one of our main parts of our mission is to connect all those people yeah. and tell those stories and let those let those people who are interested in that kind of thing know that there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, so yeah, that was that really resonates Any, with me. Anytime we bring up Fuji, that's one of the first things I always yeah, like to for mention sure. is Fuji spun for out sure. probably four or five companies just in Lexington alone. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, of people that, you know, when when Fuji unfortunately went through that that layoff, you know, a lot of those people getting a taste of a startup was enough for them to say, wow, um, I had never been exposed to this in Lexington, Kentucky. You know, this experience with Fuji was so amazing to be in that kind of atmosphere. Unfortunately, it didn't work out for me, but ultimately I, I want to keep that trend going. Like, I want to keep doing that. Um, or the ones that, you know, were young like myself and a few others that, you know, had reached a point where they were ready to, to try something new and do their own thing and, and ultimately did that. You know, they, you know, Fuji really did spin off a really good, talented amount of people um, here in Fuji and here in, in Lexington. Um, so disadvantages, what are some things, you know, there's, there's several disadvantages that come to my mind, you know, talent pool, um, access to, to capital, um, you know, talk about some of the things that you see are the biggest disadvantages because we can sit here and, and talk about disadvantages probably for a while, but what are the biggest ones that you've seen? They're obvious ones, right? I mean, the, the two that I was going to highlight um, for, you know, at the seed stage is basically, um, you know, some aspect of, of, of access to capital. So what we do, the way we invest as lead seed stage investors in the Midwest, we're relatively unique. Um, and obviously, <clears throat> we can't fund every company uh, that is in our, you know, you know, in our, in our wheelhouse across the Midwest. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, the, the ecosystem, the broader Midwest venture ecosystem needs more firms like ours at, 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 at multiple stages. Um, I think that, you know, there's a, that, that looks a little different at the series A or series B or beyond. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, at, you know, at some of those stages, you get more, uh, infiltration from, from firms, from the coast who are, who are looking for deals in the Midwest. The other part is, is, um, you know, sort of less measured and it's really just a lure, right? Um, you know, if you're a, um, you know, if, if you are a, a founder or a, a young technologist of some sort, just like if you're a young hedge fund person, um, you know, the allure is to go to where, where the activity and where the action is sort of greatest. So the allure is to, to go start your company in Silicon Valley or to go start your hedge fund in New York city or go trade on the New York stock exchange, not on some regional exchange or, you know, something like that. And, you know, we'll, we'll always compete with that in the same way that anybody else does. The, the, the key is I think continuing to show that um, the allure is just that it's allure, right? Um, you can have just as much success in uh, launching a business in Lexington or in Chicago or in St. Louis, uh, as you can elsewhere, you, you don't have to go do it that way anymore. Yeah. Uh, to build on that, do you see a migration? You know, you just talked about, you know, we're always going to be competing with the coast. People are going to be leaving because, you know, the, the funding's there, the, the talent's there, the ability to get experience at a very large, fast scaling company is there at the coast. With everything going on in the world now, uh, with COVID and, and people, maybe getting frustrated with being in New York city being scared of being in New York city, San Francisco, places like that. Uh, or even like the, the, the level of expenses and living cost of being in San Francisco, um, and New York and, and some places like Los Angeles, do you see there eventually just being a strong migration inward? Or do you think that'll always be a trend just because of the momentum those cities have? You know, I, I, I look at uh, a period like we're going through now as something that can certainly accelerate or exacerbate uh, particular trends or, 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 or become obstacles to particular trends. Um, but the, the migration of talent into a lot of the cities where we like to invest was happening well before um, you know, COVID prevented people from traveling or well before anybody developed any fear of living in a, you know, in a, in a big dense city. Um, we have a relatively recent investment uh, in a portfolio company that's based uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And the, the CEO that they brought in to run that company has extensive experience living in and working in uh, more traditional venture hubs, if you will. Um, and now he's really excited to be where he is for, for a variety of reasons, sort of across the board. 
Um, but his, his scenario is not unique. Um, and, you know, times like these where more and more activity is happening virtually in the way that we are right now is only going to sort of prove that anybody can sort of start their business in any of these places. Um, and so that I believe that that migration or, or, or I'm sorry, either the migration in or the lack of, of migration away, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it is only going to accelerate. Yeah. Yeah. You well, want uh, some spiciness to this conversation. I'll uh, disagree with a couple of points. <laughs> oh, please with do. My, uh, with my partner, uh, my esteemed partner. Um, now, most of, most of what you said, I agree with, um, but there's a couple of things. Um, the first thing, uh, I don't buy uh, that there's a significant capital shortfall between the coasts. Uh, I don't think I ever really have. Um, I do buy, though, that there is a significant smart money capital shortfall between the coasts. The number of venture funds that actually have watched businesses grow from five 10, 50, 100, 200 employees and seen businesses scale is, it's kind of frighteningly small, right? Mm -hmm. And I think one thing um, that we have that's really exciting um, on the Dundee team is we've had people that have done it as operators and we've had people that have done it as uh, investors, um, which which is pretty cool. There really aren't that many funds between the coasts that have that pattern recognition and to entrepreneurs, to actual startups, that pattern recognition is kind of all that matters other than the money, right? That's where the value comes from, from venture funds. So I think there's plenty of money out there. I think it's just, there's not enough smart money really helping these companies and, and rolling up their, their sleeves. Um, the other thing, I don't think this is really a disagreement. It's just maybe a, a slightly different framing when it comes to the migration of people from the coast. My general thought here is some people are going to see the opportunity to build businesses between the coast and they're going to leave uh, Silicon Valley, New York or Boston to start a company. I think the number of people who do that is going to be relatively small because the peer networks on the coast are just so powerful. And if you have those people with those expertises, you kind of want to build on top of them. Um, but there will be people who there'll be people who do it because of all the reasons that we've all already talked about. Where I see the big opportunity is to hire more pros from the coast, especially people who grew up here um, in the middle of the country. And our challenge is we have to scale businesses to the point where we hire pros. Right. So pros aren't hired into seed stage businesses typically. Right. David and I need to go invest in seed stage companies and turn them into series A and series B companies that hire, you know, the best software engineers in the world or the best salespeople in the world or the best product leaders in the world. And we can package that up, you know, buy a big house in uh, Omaha or St. Louis or Minneapolis or Chicago that you could never afford um, on the coast. Um, but that's really something that you package up, you know, in a later stage of a company, asking someone to pick up and move to the middle of the country, um, you, you know, where there's no way they're going to get the salary that they're getting on the coast. And the company has, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a 50, 50 shot of surviving is not a very good value proposition. You know, we need to do the hard work of, picking well and getting these companies to scale and then poaching all of the great uh, talent to the, uh, from the coast, which by the way, we can do. We did it all day long in our portfolio at Lewis and Clark um, when companies got onto the BC and later stages. And, you know, I think we'll do it at Dundee um, in the future. Yeah. And we've always had the debate about capital on this podcast, uh, whether it's lacking or whether it's here and people just, you know, aren't being smart about it or people around here aren't starting companies that meet criteria or meet what it takes to have, you know, venture capitalists be interested. We've had that. And I really encourage, you know, you guys and and our listeners to go check out the episode with John Wilmoth. You know, part of that episode was dedicated to that, that discussion. John is at Poplar Ventures and has had a lot of success in in venture capital, specifically with uh, SaaS-based SaaS software. So, 
Um, you know, I say SaaS software, but that doesn't make any sense. SaaS. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's an episode I encourage anybody to go, go listen to. Because uh, we, we had that debate. We've had it several times. And when we talk to founders and get them on here, that's one thing they, they say is I wish there was more capital. But then when we talk to venture capitalists, uh, they say, you know, I think there is capital around here. So it's it's uh, it's a unique debate. And I think you guys bring up great points there. Okay. Uh, you know, Ron, you had mentioned earlier some, some learnings uh, along your career. Let's dive a bit more deeper into those uh, for our listeners. Um, and, and David, maybe you start off with, you know, the, the the question here is the biggest failure, and you don't have to be specific. Uh, the biggest failure of your career uh, related to investing, and what did you learn? Like what were what you know? Ron, I think gave a great example earlier, but David, what about you? Uh, you know, I, I think about getting something wrong about the the people in whom I'm investing, and, and you know that can go in a couple different ways. So, so, so two that come to mind. One is one where uh, it was a, it was a, an early company that we invested in prior to Dundee, uh, sort of in the Lake West Venture Partner days, and it was in an industry that we thought, uh, from our own background in real estate, that we knew really well, and uh, we we you know thought that the market was ripe and that the product was pretty good and that we were sort of on you know on pace to do something pretty interesting. Uh, what we missed was some really glaring issues between the two founders. Um, and I don't know, I don't have an answer as to why we missed them. Like what, 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 how did we not ask the question or sort of, you know, what were, what, how did we look beyond and it, it, One of the red flags we actually looked at and said, well, everybody in this industry has that issue. So that's not a big deal. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it, it has more to do with sort of really understanding the dynamics of the people involved. The other one actually was one that led to a, a good outcome uh, from an investment perspective. But um, again, it was not fully understanding the founder's ultimate vision and desires. So in this one, totally separate business, basically the, you know, the, the founders decided that they wanted to sell the company much, much earlier than we as a venture capital investor thought that they should. Um, yes, we, we, we uh, you know, we, we made money on the, tra- on, on, the, on the transaction. It was a good outcome. Um, but we thought that we were aligned with the founders to work towards one particular goal and they were working towards a different goal. And so having those kind of, you know, heart to hearts, both initially and throughout the process is really, really important. How much time do you try to spend with founders? So, you know, that's, I think it's, it's interesting that, you know, one part of your all's big criteria is really getting to know the founders, but how much time can you ultimately spend with the founder to really learn enough about them to have that conviction? Yeah. I mean, the, the diligence process is, is extensive. I mean, there's, I, I don't want to put an, we don't, we don't have like a, there's not a, you know, a check the box. We've had our five meetings with so-and-so and and therefore can make an investment, but um, we meet with them in a lot of different settings and a lot of different ways and cover different aspects of their business and their life in all those meetings. So Ron alluded to, alluded to it before, not all the meetings are about, you know, tell me about, um, you know, the, your IP protection or tell me about your, the, the moat around your business. It's sitting down for a meal and hearing them have a regular conversation about, you know, their family or their passions or their interests or about what their ultimate goals are. Um, and, and having to, you know, get comfortable with that. They're telling you the truth. Um, so that, that's a, you know, that's a, a, a big part of it as well. Then, you know, there's of course, customer interactions we talked about before other reference checks, uh, you know, what were these people like in other settings that can help us understand sort of, you know, what they are going to be like in the settings that we're talking about. Um, so that is all part of getting to know, uh, getting to know people, not getting to know founders, not getting to know technologists, but getting to know people that we want to work with on a regular basis over a period of time to achieve a goal. Yep. Makes yeah, sense. Ventures like baseball too, right? Like, I mean, I don't think it's as bad as batting averages, but you know, like you, you don't hit a thousand uh in in venture you don't hit a thousand in baseball um unfortunately the tests that we have the instruments that we have are pretty crude and we're gonna make mistakes 
And you can go back. I think when I was at Lewis and Clark, there were a couple of investments like this where we got a personality or a team way wrong, but we would go back and audit the data that was available to us at the time when we made the decision. And we were like, you know, we, we just couldn't have known this given what we knew at the time, right? And in some cases it led us to ask better questions and do more than we did in the past. But in some cases you just look at it and you say, you're just not gonna get it right all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Not everybody has an, an arrest record that you can look to to say, huh, maybe we shouldn't invest in that person. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Uh, okay. It's really I mean, hard, by the way, with first-time founders. Yeah, yeah right? totally. Because you have really no experience there to go off of. Does that, does that create a barrier sometimes for first-time founders? Is that something that you guys look at pretty critically and say, or does that maybe take more diligence when you guys are having these meetings? Are you guys looking a little bit more critically at first-time founders? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think it's yeah. just a little bit more diligence. I think the bar, um, just for raw intellect and going back to that idea of a learning machine, maybe just mm -hmm. slightly higher um, than someone who's got that experience and the credibility and the references that you can go to. Yep, makes sense. Uh, let's give our learner, our, our, our learners, let's give our audience some ways to learn about, you know, venture capital investing, maybe even just straight up startups. Uh, how have you guys spent your time learning? Do you guys read books? Do you guys watch YouTube videos? Talk a bit about your, you know, when you guys think back to when you guys first became, you know, venture capitalists, I'm sure the tools to, to learn have changed, but talk about how you guys stay up with trends, stay up with, uh, topics related to the industry and then pass some of those along to our audience that might want to spend some time themselves looking into this. Sure. Uh, I can kick it off. So, so my initial entry point into venture came from, uh, I was uh, I, um, more in like sort of the private equity world. And so, you know, I, I started to develop this interest in the sort of venture activity happening in Chicago in sort of, you know, 2010 timeframe. And I said, okay, I, I'm a, I, I'm sort of a networker by, by, I don't know, history. I've, I've networked my way through a variety of things at a, at a couple different inflection points in my overall career. And so I just set out to get to know everybody. Um, you know, I set out to meet with, through warm connections, everybody I could who was a venture investor or venture participant in the Chicago scene at that time and start to learn from them in any way I could. And fortunately for me at that time, it was a very collaborative environment. I, you know, I did have good warm intros and good network and, you know, people that could, uh, you know, that could, could get me, you know, they weren't sort of cold outreach meetings to VCs in town saying, uh, you know, Hey, somebody teach me about VC. Um, but you know, that was sort of my entry point. I didn't do it by, you know, reading, um, you know, reading business books and, um, you know, at the time. So, you know, my, um, my MO has always been to go to the people. Um, and so very early on for me, like it was meeting, um, you know, uh, Sam Yagen, who had, who, um, it was the founder, uh, one of the founders of OkCupid, uh, ran match.com, you know, at the time he had just started accelerate labs here in Chicago, which, uh, which became part, which became actually the first, as I recall, the first tech stars, um, sort of satellite program outside of Boulder. And Sam was essentially like a guide. He said, come hang out here and learn what it is we're doing from these, this, sort of ran, this sort of random group of people that have experience in the space. And there I was. And that's how I got to meet the, you know, the guys behind Chicago Ventures, like Kevin Willer and Hyde Park, like Ira Weiss. And, and all, of those, all those people were sort of collaborative in nature at that time within this city and ready to go. All I needed to do at that point was sort of find the, essentially the, the family office structure to start writing checks and away we went. So that was sort of the way that, that I did it. So I, you know, I'm a big proponent of sort of networking one's way through as many people as you possibly can. Yeah. And Ron, before you give yours, uh, just a question, is venture capital more about analyzing people and business models than it is about finance? Would you, would, do you think that's the case? Certainly at the earliest stages? Yes. Okay. I've always been curious about that because I mean the the reason I say that and and I'm I'm open to you know to 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 disagreement. The reason why I've said that here 
is because and I, when I was in the private equity world, you build a model about a, a business that you were thinking about acquiring or how it was going to operate. And, you know, you had a couple variables or things that, you know, things that you wanted to adjust to make the business operate differently. But a lot of those numbers were, were fixed in some way. They were existing revenue numbers. They were whatever they were. Um, when you're looking at a seed stage startup opportunity, um, you, almost nothing is fixed. Yeah. Everything is a variable. So it's not about creating a financial model and a financially engineered transaction that you expect to adjust a market-based multiple uh, and sell off of EBITDA three to five years down the road. That's, that's not what it is. Um, and so you can put together a variety of models, but they could be entirely wrong on every, in every cell. Yeah. No, I like that answer because I know I'll get it. I do want to get in and I know I will into, into venture capital one day. And I, I know I'm not you know, very good financially. Uh, well, I know I'm not uh, numbers driven. I'm, I'm not an accounting guy. I'm not. Um, when I look at a company, I, I love investing in, in the stock market and, and early IPOs and things of that nature. And I, I love looking at the business models and the technology and the founders. Um, and, and so I, I, I do like that answer. And it makes a ton of sense. You know, nothing is nothing is able to be modeled very well in the early stages of a company, like you said. We've had so many founders come on here and, and just harp on that point that, you know, in the early stages of a company, uh, there is nothing that's that's super predictable. Um, so that, that's a good answer. Cool. Um, yeah, Ron, so, you know, the ways that you've learned and, and maybe suggestions you have for our audience to, to learn more about venture capital. Sure. I think David's answer is so good. And if I were, you know, mentoring someone um, young who was, you know, trying to get their way into venture capital, I would probably start by saying exactly what David said, go meet as many people as you possibly can and learn as much as you can from those folks. Um, and I've tried to do that as much as I can myself. Uh, a detail I left out in my bio is that before I got into venture, I was an academic. Um, Maybe I did say the PhD part, um, but part of that um, background makes me a bit of a reader and uh, a big part of my knowledge base, I think I've just gotten from reading all of the amazing blogs um, and uh, you know Twitter profiles that are out there in venture. And I almost feel like it's gotten so uh, voluminous that there's just no excuse for people not knowing the ins and outs of venture capital because it's all out there. You know, when I meet with a founder that doesn't really understand a term sheet, I've become pretty skeptical at this point because you all you have to do to learn about a term sheet now is to just type a few things into Google. And, you know, that wasn't really true even five or six years ago when I got into venture capital. So, you know, it's an information rich world today um, that people have and, and venture is just so easy to learn about. The other thing that I'd mentioned that I think is kind of, uh, has been really fun in my career is I feel like I've learned so much from the people um, that I've hired. And a lot of the folks that I've hired were interns. Um, and most of the interns that I hired have gone on to uh, start their careers in venture capital. Um, and, uh, you know, like, so Joe Darcy, Brittany Walker, Alex Novelli, they've all been just these sponges, these learning machines that I've tried to build great relationships with and then stay in touch with. And I've learned so much from these people um, and hope that many more great interns or associates or analysts will uh, come and find us um, so I can continue to learn fast in the future. Yeah, those are great answers. Yeah, I, I really resonate with the uh, definitely learning from other people. That's how I've gotten the space that I am. Actually, this guy right here, Evan, I've learned a ton from him. That's how I got into the position I'm in now. So that's that's all stuff that really resonates with me. Um, so now we're getting towards the end here. We always like to end on a forward, positive, positive forward-looking statement on the future of, of this region. For you guys, I think the mighty middle uh, is, is a good place to talk about. So give us your forward, your forward-looking statement on on the mighty middle, where you see it going in the next five to ten years. Kick off. Yeah, sure. So uh, I, I made this case um, when uh, I was chatting with the uh, Dundee guys about potentially uh, joining. So I, I have this really strong belief that in the next decade, maybe the next five years, uh, 
there will be breakout successes in venture and we will start to have flagship venture funds um, on the same level as what you see on the coast. Uh, I firmly believe that we will be one of those uh, venture funds. Um, and I think that the, the space is wide open. There's plenty of people competing um, to be that. Um, but I do believe very deeply that it's going to happen. And I think that will be really critical for the success of the ecosystem over time. Yeah, yeah we, we, we obviously, the rest of the Dundee team shares that vision. And that's why it was so easy for us to come together with Ron. I mean, we're talking about an area that already houses some of the most valuable companies in the world and, you know, headquarters and where sort of many of the top research institutions exist. And it is just ripe for, uh, you know, sort of the, the proliferation of these types of successful businesses. And so it's our job to make sure that we're finding, selecting and helping them get there. And, and then they, and they will, and, and we will as well. That's, that's, that, that, those are the ingredients that we see and we're, uh, we are excited to be sort of helping drive those outcomes.